You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. P.P. Arnold, Pat Arnold, this, well, this is really fantastic that, that you're here because you've touched so many people with your voice. And Aww. as an example, and really those last words of your biography, they, you know, when I read that, it, it just touched me so much. I'm a thriving soul survivor still going strong and going strong you definitely are I mean you've got a new single out which we're going to talk about a little bit later it won't be Christmas without you hence the wonderful jumper that you've got on (laughs) yeah I thought I'd make an effort here I don't have any of my walls I've got blank white walls behind me so I thought let me just sort of uh you know Christmassy up a bit you know, because it's this, what is it? What, what what do we have, 25 or is it 24 days? Exactly. No, it's not long. It's not long. Now, I read your autobiography um, this morning, actually, and it came out earlier this year. And I want to talk to you about the highs and lows, the difficulties and the challenges that you faced on your life. And one of the most intriguing things that you've included in this autobiography is by delving into the lives of your parents and your grandparents and in a way connecting the dots in in your life which is fantastic but the book starts at a pivotal moment in your life you're a teenage mother you're in an abusive relationship and you're looking hoping and praying for a way out can you remember the emotions that you felt in that relationship and what you prayed for? Oh, it was awful, really. You know, I was a young girl and, um, you know, my boyfriend, who later became my husband, was older than me. He was about four or five older years older than me. When I look back on it, I realized that I was being groomed, really, because I was just a young, silly teenager, you know, just starting high school and really just looking forward to, you know, having more freedom, my father giving me more freedom to hang out and, and be a teenager, really. And um, and I had met him at the first Hunter Hancock record hop. Which was just the, at the Friday night dances at Fremont, John C. Fremont High School. And it was a big deal, you know, just graduating from high school. Anyway, you know, I'm in this relationship and, um, and uh, just boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, I was just a little teenager, just infatuated, you know. And he was just like on me, he had been on me and on me about ditching school, you know. Well, I had never did school in my life. I never wanted to ditch school. I really loved school. But a lot of my friends did school and they did that thing. But I was like, I never did because my father was like very, very strict. And uh, anyway, didn't want to did school, but uh, he kept putting pressure on me. So I thought, okay, what do I do? Because I liked him. I didn't want him to start liking somebody else. You know, silly, silly young girl infatuation thoughts. So I thought, well, okay, well, I'll ditch one class. So after lunch, I had my music appreciation class. So I thought, okay, I'll ditch that one class because I know I can make that up, it's not a problem. And I'll go dish that one class and then come back and and have my last class and ride home with my brother in in, in his car, you know? So anyway, I went thinking, you know, it's gonna be a little kissing and a hug and, you know, just sort of petting, silly petting. And I got jumped on, really. And uh, and I became pregnant, you know, just like that, you know, and wow. So I didn't know for a while, you know, but I did realize after that happened that I wasn't going to like really be in any more kind of like 
situations with him by myself where I couldn't like sort of like control the whole thing and everything. But anyway, yeah, I became pregnant. And uh, so, uh, you know, eventually it was a whole thing, you know, it was like I became pregnant, you know, like one, you know, and then uh, eventually you, uh, after being banned from seeing him throughout the whole pregnancy and everything, and then after I had the child, you know, he and my father decided that it was okay for him to like visit me and the child as long as he paid $25 a week. So for a measly $25 a week to like sort of like, you know, help with the baby's formula and clothes and stuff like that, I was forced to be around him, you know, after being like on house arrest, <laughs> really throughout my whole pregnancy. And so, you know, I was a young girl, you know, just infatuated, infatuated and, you know, and then, you know, he was cute, you know, and, but so was I. You know, but I didn't really know how cute I was or anything. You know, anyway, I got pregnant again. And so my father forced me to get married. And uh, so that's what it was. No choice. You know, we would march down to the uh, uh, city hall with my mother and his mother. I mean, my father didn't even come. You know, there was no wedding, there was no reception, there was no celebration for Mary and Theoricole's oldest daughter getting married. And then we were like forced to live with my grandmother anyway, I was in this situation. So because during the time I had been pregnant, I had stopped going to church. Nobody forced me to because really I was had brought shame on the family and so I'm in, I'm, I'm sort of like dealing with it, you know? So here I am, 17, I've got two children. And uh, on Sundays, I also work two jobs. I work two jobs. Uh, during the day I worked at, a, at the Sally Shops of California. I was like really lucky to get this job as a clerk typist because I had no diplomas or anything. It's just like a friend of mine helped me get this job. So like I had, you know, a respectable job during the day and, and I and I had a night job. I would pick my kids up from my mother's uh, at the end of uh, the day and I would take them home and feed them and put them to bed. And, and then I'd go and do my night job thing. So it was hell. So I, on Sundays, that's the day where I did all my chores and I did my, you know, all my laundry and the cleaning and getting the kids things ready for the week, getting ready for the whole routine of me going to work, taking them to my mom, picking them up, feeding them, you know, the whole thing. And I was in the laundry room and I was just like, I was just so... That morning, I, I I can remember it just like it was yesterday, being in there and just just being so down, you know. Sunday morning, no more going to church singing. I love singing in the choir. And so I just asked God to show me a way. I prayed and I prayed and asked for forgiveness and asked him to show me a way out of the hell that I created for myself, really. And um, by being an idiot, girls don't ditch school. Let me tell you that right now. It's not a good thing to do. You know, go to school, get your education, and just, like, be strong. And don't let these guys talk you into doing silly things. Well, I don't, don't know <laughs> if it's your fault in that sense. You know, if you're with a physically and mentally abusive person, it's... It's not necessarily, you know, you were just a child. And, I was and a he took child. away your dreams, you know, in a sense, didn't he? At oh, that he just everything in my dreams. I hadn't even started having big dreams. You know, I hadn't even I certainly never thought about singing or being uh, a professional singer. I love singing because I grew up singing in the church. So I love singing. But 
the thought never crossed my mind. I was just trying to like make my parents happy and graduate from high school and become a and, 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 and become a legal secretary, which in those days was a you know serious job for a young black girl, you know, to have a um, to be a legal secretary. So luckily, because I was like planning on being a legal secretary, I could talk, I could type, and I got that clerk typist job. <laughs> you know. So anyway, yeah. So I I said that prayer. I went inside, and I'll try to edit this down. It's always really hard editing all of this. I tell you, uh, went inside. Uh, you know, getting dinner together, get a phone call about an hour later from Maxine Smith, who is an ex-girlfriend of, of my brother. And she was, she knew Gloria Scott, who you probably heard of, Gloria Scott, soul singer, you know. And Gloria, Gloria was an ICAT, but not in the review. She like, I had two sets of baguettes, you know, one set went on the road with the Dick Clark show, the other set was with the review. So the girls with the review, Robbie, Jesse and Vanetta, they were leaving because they had that great record. I'm so thankful out. And uh, I, you know, I, I didn't, he was really pissed at him because he didn't have anything to do with the record, right? So they wanted to leave and, and they changed their name to the Murats. And so the job was open. So Gloria wanted that that uh, the to be an ICAT with the review and travel with the review and the band and everything. So her and Maxine called me. They were desperate. They were really desperate. The girl that was supposed to go with them to the audition didn't show up. And so Maxine knew that I could sing. And I had snuck away and did a little, uh, her boyfriend, Jimmy Green, he had a little studio in, in his backyard and he used to like write songs and like for, for productions for Bobby Day. And so the Rock and Robin guy. So I had, uh, Maxine had asked me to go with them once. And so I just went there, you know, shouldn't have been there either. But I went and uh, that's where I met Gloria. So they thought, oh, well, call her, you know, she'll help us get the gig, you know. So anyway, <clears throat> so. They call me and I say, oh, no, I can't go. My husband's not going to let me go. And they go like, you know, they wouldn't take no for an answer. They just hung up the phone. We're coming to get you. Bam. So, <laughs> you know, an hour later, they show up on my doorstep. So I lie and tell my husband, ask my husband, is it okay if I go shopping, Manchester, Broadway, do a little shopping with him? I was so tacky. I had all my cleaning clothes on, little like a, little hat, this, this little like hairnet hat you used to wear when you when you went out that had the feathers in it. Oh, I was tacky to the bone. And uh, so anyway, then I go and then I go with them, you know, outside this Cadillac is waiting with Jimmy Thomas driving it. I don't know if you know Jimmy Thomas. Did you ever meet Jimmy? Oh, no. what a lovely man. You know, he just passed away recently. But uh, he was my friend for all these years, and uh, I, I I sang at his funeral recently. But Jimmy was the first person that I knew in show business because he had picked me up, driving me away. The next thing I know, I'm at Ike and Tina's house up in View Park, which was like the the the, the Black Hollywood of South Central LA, and that you know, there I was singing, dancing in the streets. And so we did the audition. I, I just followed. Gloria was singing. She was the lead. I knew the harmonies. You know, everybody knew dancing in the street. And uh, Gloria uh, uh, opened up with something else, and I just followed her harmony. And then afterwards, Tina goes, right, girls, you got the gig. You know, and I go like, oh, no, not me. Not me. I got to go home. My husband's going to kick my butt. I shouldn't have been here and I should have been home two hours ago. So Tina says, if you're going to get your butt quick kicked for nothing, why don't you ride up to Fresno with us to, uh, to see the show? And so then, you know, the rest is history. You know, I go up there, I see the show, I come home, I get my butt kicked. And while I was getting, you know, the, when he hit me in the head this that time, it's like he knocked some sense into me because 
I remembered my prayer. I had forgot that this whole day had started with the prayer. And then something in me is just like my spirit. I just, I just knew that I was going to do it. I was going to go on the road. I just had this feeling that this was my way out of this, you, you know, abusive marriage. So, How yeah. did you manage to leave? Wasn't it your father that helped? Yeah, my mother, you know, I couldn't do anything without my mother uh, agreeing to look after my kids. And my father sort of talked to David and, and you know, really had a go at him because nobody knew I was being abused like I was because I, you know, I was laying in my hard bed, you know, and just I didn't want to bother my family. And, you know, I was ashamed anyway, just bring more shame and more problems. So I was just dealing with it. So when my father found out, you know, that he had a real go at David and David was like, he didn't, he never knew a father, you know, you you know, really, he was like a he was like a wayward. He was he wasn't he was a, he was grown up. You know, he was eighteen, nineteen. If he hadn't married me, he would have had to go to jail for statutory rape. So that's the only reason he married me. You know, so he didn't really love me, and, and oh, and he was that I was just the ugliest thing to him. And, and <laughs> anyway, so my father. Um, talked to him and said that he should have, uh, that maybe I shouldn't have gone up there or whatever, but you, you, you know, maybe it wouldn't hurt him to go and see, you know, what this opportunity was because it was an opportunity for me because I hadn't graduated from high school or anything, you know? So anyway, yeah, we went up there, you know? And so like by the end of the day, I was an ICAT and, uh, I was left there and we started working on all the routines. We had about four days before they, the first gig. So we had to learn that whole show and all of those routines. And, you know, can you, can you, me, remember, you said that you went to Fresno and that Tina said, you know, well, if he, you know, if it's all going to go wrong at home, come with us in any case and come to Fresno. And you saw them on stage. Can you remember? What impression Tina made on you? On ah, Tina was just like, just incredible. She was, she just like, you know, Ike was too. You know, like we were like, we, I, I was just sitting in the back of the club because I had never been in a club and I was tacky and everything. And I, I was just sitting back there waiting. We weren't allowed to go in the dressing room because the other girls were leaving. And they didn't want them to see us in the in the club. And yeah, so I came on, you know, first I comes on with the Kings of Rhythm, with the band, the great band. They just like smoking, the band smoking, you know. And then Jimmy Thomas and Bobby John, there were two male singers. They come on, they do their thing. It was just like, wow. I was just like, you know, in the back of the room with my eyes, just like, you know, just like totally starstruck, really, you, you know, and um, then the ICATs come on and they were so cool and so pretty and they did their thing and everything. And then Tina comes on. Wow. And she was just like, she just stormed on the stage and just wigs flying everywhere, but shaking, you know, she was just like, wow, she was just on fire, you know, and she just did her thing. Shake was the first number that they do. They always started the show with that. And she was just amazing. I was just, my mind was blown. I always think that I and Tina, and they go off stage with, the, with this dance called the shag, you know, that's how we we go off stage on, you know, and they had the flicker light. So I had never been to a show like like that. I had been to the Fillmore Auditorium when I was like thirteen and saw Ray Charles, but that was a different kind of a show, 
you know, and like I'd never been in a club. So the club and the atmosphere and everybody was partying and it was just like, wow, you know. So, yeah, but, you know, like on the way back when they were they were like saying, you, you know, like, you got to talk to your husband, you know what I mean? We really want you to come with us and we want you to join, but but you have to let us know. You you have to let us know by tomorrow because if you're not going to go, we have to find another girl because we got a show in Columbus, Ohio, you, you know. So so then I went through the whole thing with my family and everything. And that evening I was an ICAT. But music, was, music was, sorry, music was in your family already, wasn't it? You mentioned that you you were in the choir at church. Yeah. But your, your father also used to sing you songs, which has had a, a, also a sort of symbolism uh, to them and a history to them. Um, could you tell oh, me Oh, that about... was my grandfather, Papa that, Thie. Ah, that was your grandfather. Okay. Yeah, could... Papa Thie, he loved the blues. You know, don't worry about the mule being blind. Just load the wagon and shake the line. You know, and you, you know, I used to say all these like blues songs uh, that were like um, uh, related to like picking cotton, you know, being in the cotton fields and picking cotton and stuff like that. So like he, you know, he could sing. Everybody in my family could sing. Papa T was the only one that didn't go to church. So he was not into church. <laughs> no, he was not into church at all. He liked to, we worked hard and on Friday nights, he take, he used to wear this like, um, he used to wear this, uh, the, this real English uh, cockney cap. He had a whole lot of hair. He, he, he looked like Fats Domino. He was a very handsome man, had this widow's peak like Fats Domino. And during the week, he would just wear that cap. He wouldn't take it off, but on Fridays when he got paid, then he would stop by the liquor store, get his whiskey and cigarettes and come home and conk his hair up and get dressed and, you know, like dressed to the nines and head out to Central Central Avenue where all the blues clubs were in, in L.A. So that was his thing. He was he was a bit of a wild man. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. The songs my grandfather used to sing, the when I yeah. speak about him or his blues kind of thing, being in the cotton, being in picking cotton in the fields. The other songs, the gospel songs, related to like uh, the, the Underground Railroad. You know, the, these were the songs that was that that was sung to to guide the to guide the slaves the runaway slaves who were like is trying to escape you know so like songs like wait in the water wait in the water children wait you know hymns like that 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 was to tell them not to 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 walk in the water, you know, like not to leave the footprints because they would have the the slave masters would be would have dogs looking for them, you know. Once they found out that somebody was missing, you know, they got all the hounds and the dogs, and they would be out, you know, trying to catch them, and they had to like go through this journey to get to to uh, a safe place that would take them to this underground railroad kind of thing. But there, 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 there was a whole uh, underground passage that took them, you know, out of the South into a safe place. When did, yeah. you know, you, you went through the rehearsal and you went on tour with Ike and Tina Turner. Um, when did you, first notice a side of Ike um, that was, you know, really horrible. I mean, you know. Well, well, pretty side. much straight away. <laughs> God. <laughs> because, you, you know, for us, because, you know, like, we were, like, learning the show, right? We, we, we were, like, we had been rehearsing all week, and then we, like, all the way to Columbus, Ohio, in the car, we would be rehearsing all the tunes, right? 
So we had never done a show, you know, so when we get to Columbus, Ohio, we do the first gig, right? And the first gig, we were pretty spot on. We were like, everybody was like, yeah, right, you girls did really good and everything, you know. But, you know, you can do better. You know, there was all the, all the you know, which was true. You know, we were learning. So, but then the second night, <laughs> so we had been riding in the Cadillac all that time. I didn't even know that we would be like, put on the bus, you know, I knew nothing. I was just like green. I knew nothing. So the next night we the the, the next night we were we we um we were playing some somewhere else. And there was this girl who came in the dressing room and she was just like good. She was so great. So that was the first I I just let us know. Yeah. So like if if you mess up you know, we could, I got a phone book full of girls. You know what I mean? I can call anybody. He, he had a book that had every singer and every musician in the United States in there. You know, you can be replaced. And then that third night when we really messed up, he was furious. We got kicked out of the car. <laughs> We got kicked out of the car and then onto the bus. Well, well, Gloria and Maxine knew that's what was going to happen, but I didn't know. So for me, it was really a big shock to be on this bus. And it wasn't like the modern like buses that people travel in these days. It was like one of those old raggedy Greyhound buses, right? And so you got on there and it was dark, you know, and all the musicians, all the guys were there and it was just us three girls. And I was like, yeah, it was. So, yeah, that was the first time that I saw him use his temper. And then, you know, it wasn't long. You know, Ike, Ike was, um, he had more than, there was more than one woman, one of his women on the tour. You know, there was a, there was a thing. And Tina, if she, if, she just had to be like, whatever, she messed up. She was like, really, you know, she get beat up. You'd been in an abusive relationship yourself. Was was Tina, in was a, Tina was in an abusive relationship with Ike, obviously. Was that, did you see that as a mirror? That to was what really hard for me. That was really hard for me experiencing that because, you know, like I'm still very, very shy, very introverted, very damaged from that whole life. And, you know, when I first met Tina that day when we were all in her just room, I just thought she was a queen. I thought she just, her and Ike were just the perfect couple and she had everything a woman could want, all these great, beautiful clothes and you know, sequins and gowns and fur coats and 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 shoes for days, you know, beautiful. She was just glamorous, you know, and, and the beautiful home. She had her own car, her Lincoln car. I just thought she was like, they were just a perfect couple, you know. And so for me to have to watch her suffer like that after she had saved me she had saved me because see like I had sense enough to get out of it I was I was married to my husband I stay I was with him on that first tour but when I went back home after being on that first tour because see when I left I was really shy and I was like you know as far as I was concerned ugly because that's what he told me I was ugly. So that's what I thought. I had never worn lipstick or worn makeup or wore. So, you know, like I was kind of like an ugly duckling when I joined the ICANN. But when I came back from the tour, that first tour, I had turned into a swan. So, so like my husband was beating me then for being too beautiful. He thought I looked too good. He was jealous. So, you know, after one really harrowing Saturday afternoon where I almost lost my life, I left him. And that's it. And I never looked back. You know, I got out of there. 
called the police, got my kids out of there and never ever looked back. So the fact that Tina had saved me was, you, you, you know, it was really hard for me to have to watch her because I I really loved Tina. I wasn't, I don't think that I was her favorite I get or, or anything because I was so shy. I was so inhibited. You know what I mean? I wasn't like, I wasn't like the, the, the party girl, the hip girl, the, you know, the glamour girl into like all the fashion magazines or knowing, you know, any, I wasn't worldly. So, you know, I was, I was Porter. They called me Porter, which was a, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, some woman who I uh, grew up next door to probably some, some older woman with a big butt who had, uh, who had like, Ike used to like kind of, she used to mess with Ike when he was a little boy or something. I don't know what the whole story was, but I've always been kind of like, uh, you know, quite endowed in that region and of my body. <laughs> and so, you know, so they would joke about it, you know, call me Porter and everything, but Ike was serious about it, you know. I was young. I was seventeen. I was I was fresh meat. And apart from all that going on, you know, obviously you've got the the common experience of an African American during that period of segregation. Yeah. And living under that. So, what? When did the first realization of segregation hit you during that tour well you know i i knew i was already i had the realization of segregation because even though we were living in la you know blacks were we we were segregated you know there were a few white kids that went to my school and who i knew because i was on like uh i i made good grades I was like an AB student, so I got a chance to do activities with these kids who were like, you know, uh, from uh, middle class white families who were like living because the area that we actually lived in wasn't like a urban ghetto like like you would see in New York. Uh, Harlem or anything like that, you know, uh, Los Angeles is beautiful, you know, palm trees, you know, we lived in, we, I grew up in a really beautiful house, you know, with big backyards with fruit trees and, and the neighborhood was originally a white neighborhood that when the blacks moved in, the whites moved out. So the only whites that were in still in our vicinity were, you know, nice people, you know, who were like taking advantage of the low prices of the houses and things like that. You know, so uh, I was aware of segregation and I was aware that, you know, it was, it was, you know, and I had heard all the stories. I grew up listening. My parents are from East Texas you know, the South descended of slaves, you know, sharecroppers. And so I grew up hearing all the stories about all the hatred and the and the killings and the hangings and and just the horrible treatment of uh, of of blacks, you know, black black people. Whereas in our community in Watts in those days, people always think that when you when you say Watts, sure, there's a there was a part of Watts that some parts of it was like kind of ghetto-ish, you know, projects and stuff like that. But the majority of those of those uh, neighborhoods were really nice neighborhoods, you know, with with really uh, nice families, families who other families who had migrated from the south, getting away from the whole racist Jim Crow attitude and looking for a better way of life, you know, going west instead of like going uh, north. Like a lot of people went north into, you know, North Carolina and and uh, North Carolina, Chicago, New York, you know, Detroit, they went north 
but uh, a lot of people from Texas and Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, a lot of those families in our neighborhood, there were families from all of those states, you know, and there was, it was like a great neighborhood because there were like loads of kids in our neighborhood. And in those days, you know, it wasn't so, it wasn't fear, you know, people didn't live with, uh, uh, with their houses all sort of like with, with barred up and, you know, all the families, you could leave your front door, all the families knew everybody, everybody knew everybody, you know, uh, the kids, we all played together, you know, during the summer and stuff, we would have lemonade stands and, you know, it was, it was fun, you know, it was fun growing up there. Then I wouldn't have wanted to grow up there in the, in the uh, 70s and 80s when everything changed. Because like in the 60s, what happened as well, they ran the, the freeway through our neighborhood. So like all of those families that had like really come together and were so close and, and there was that community support that everybody had, that was totally taken away. You know, so like when things when 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 things got really bad, like in the seven, you know, in the seventies, all the drugs. When the police brought all them drugs off in there, and all of that stuff, and the gangs, and and all the violence and everything, that wasn't like that when I grew up. So, just going back to to Ike, one track that you were on was the Phil Spector produced. River Deep Mountain. I wasn't high. on that track. I thought you were on the backing singer, but aren't you credited? No, on that? I wasn't. I was on the album. I produced some of those tracks and Phil produced some of those tracks. So the tracks that Phil produced, I was had Phil didn't want him anywhere in the vicinity while he was working with Tina. So the Ikeats, we weren't invited to field sessions, but we sang on, uh, I sang with Brenda Holloway and her sister on a lot of the things because the other two girls that were in the, in the iCats with me at that time, they were, one of them couldn't sing at all. She just looked good. She got fined if she sang. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and so like, Anyway, so I wasn't actually singing on River Deep Mountain High. I wish I was, but I was, you know, I was with the review when we promoted it and we did that video before we came to England that everybody sees. We're doing all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, um, and, um, but I was with the review and I was blessed to be able to be there when, when that record uh, flopped in America. You know, because the white stations didn't play it because it was too black and the black stations didn't play it because it was too white. And, you know, and, you know, both Tina and Phil Spector was devastated. And I think, uh, yeah, I think Phil just like, he just left the business for a while or something or something. I, you know, that's the stories about what happened there. But Tina was devastated because she was that was her way out she wanted to do something different she was really excited about that record so when the record became a hit in america that was just great for her you know to when it became a hit in britain you mean it became, Sorry, yeah. that's what i mean when yeah. it became yeah. a hit in britain yes but and uh so and i was with the review when when they came to the uk so that yeah. was uh the the catalyst to the second, you know, just sort of uh, how, how, how would I say that? Uh, it was a destiny situation. So, destino or something? Is that a word? Destino? <laughs> I don't know. It's a good word, though. <laughs> You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. I 
Mike and Tina already knew about it, but Bill and Charlie came to the Galaxy, a club that we were working in on uh, on Sunset Boulevard. They were in LA. So that's the first time that we heard about that we were going, that the review was going to uh, to England, you know, because they came to, to they, I think they were the first stones to actually meet Icantina in the flesh. So this was when you're supporting the Stones yeah. in Britain, and then you meet Mick Jagger. What was your first impression of him? He made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was so funny. You, you you know, basically we met him the first night. We I mean, we went straight out of like the racism and and the whole segregated uh way of touring that we toured, you know, doing the Chitlin circuit in America, you know, which was the circuit where all, all the black artists worked. Everybody black. I don't care what your status was, everybody, all the black artists worked the Chitlin circuit. And the uh, and the East Coast theaters, you know, like the Apollo Theater in in New York, and the Howard Theater in D.C., and 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 the, and the theater in in Philly as well. That was a big big theater in, that that we worked there. Um, and so, um, yeah, it was we worked a, a really segregated black circuit. And we did, the only time that we like really like played with mixed audiences was in Hollywood, really, you know, when we would come back. But what we would do is go on like 90 day tours uh, that would travel from the South. We leave LA, go down South and, and, and then hit the East Coast and then come back, you, you know, through the Northwest, Northeast, into the north northwest it was like 90 days you would be on tour for you know and you were working like <laughs> probably about at least it I, I i'm sure we only had about three days off of, of that whole time we never had time off you know so really so anyway we were working the chitlin circuit and then the first gig we come to england and the first gig is in royal albert hall so, you, you you know, it was just crazy, you know, that, that whole change, you know, like until like we landed in England, that was a totally, it was a whole youth revolution happening, a whole rock and roll revolution. Like we landed in London and, you know, we had no idea that all these kids knew all about the music, all our music, all the Motown, all, all the black music, all the blues, all the everything. And, you know, all these great musicians, all these young white guys were playing the blues and, I mean, the Stones and, you know, Jeff Beck and and uh, Long John Baldry. That's who I was thinking about early. Long John Baldry was on that tour. And you you know, great acts. Terry Reed, those guys are really talented. Everybody was doing, you know, they they knew their stuff, you know. So um, so anyway, we met Mick. Mick Mick came back and introduced himself, you know, like before we went on tour, you went on stage and everything, Mick Jagger, because I didn't even know anybody's names. We had met Charlie and Bill, but I didn't know Mick Jagger's name. I didn't, you know, I thought Satisfaction was Otis Redding's dude and that the Stones were covering Otis Redding. That's what I thought. You know, so anyway, he was funny and he used to make me laugh because, you know, you know he's like, Walking like a black man, talking like a black man, you know, singing like a black man, you know, trying to do the thing. So we used to, have, you know, he used to come to the dressing room and we would be doing routines and doing stuff with him and everything. It was just fun. It was fun. It was fun. It was fun. I had landed in London. I had never been a teenager. I went from being out of this, uh, this uh, abusive team marriage into being on the road with Ike and Tina Turner. I had never been a teenager. You know, I was an Ike. That was my job. I never even, the 
thought of me being an artist in my own right had never, ever crossed my mind, just like being in show business hadn't. You know, and so anyway, I became friends with Mick, which was like, you know, wow, that really caused a whole bunch of problems. You know, Ike was not happy. You know, suddenly shy, introverted Pat was over here in London hanging out with this white boy who just happened to be Mick Jagger, <laughs> you know, and having fun. I was having fun and he couldn't do anything about it because he had no control over me. And so like, I got a bit, you know, I realized that I was, I'd had enough of I, you know, having to deal with him and, and watching all the abuse with uh, Tina as well. You know, so I mentioned to Mick that I was gonna, I thought that I was gonna leave the review when we came back to the States. And, uh, and you know, the word got around. Ian Stewart was the one that kind of like uh, told Andrew that he thought that he should like check me out because I was this the is, lead singer with the Ikets at that time. This is and Andrew Oldman, who's the manager of Andrew the Andrew Oldham was the manager yeah. of the Rolling Stones and he had like one of the early first independent record labels, immediate records that had all these great artists on it. You you know, the small faces, the small faces and I sort of like joined joined the label around the same time. They 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 were already on the label. Of course it was like uh, uh, lots of people on that that label. Amen Gona, Fleetwood Mac, you know, uh later, you know, Rod Stewart was on on the label. Uh, Rod and I, uh, the the records that we did together, that was that put him on the label really, because Mick produced us doing uh, that "Come Home Baby" track. But the small faces, Amen Corner, the, the you know twice as much. There was this fabulous duet, David and Andrew, who wrote a lot of the stuff. They wrote a lot of the stuff on the first lady. Everything's gonna be all right. But tell me uh, about. When you first heard uh, the track before you sung it and made it a hit yourself, the first cut is the deepest. What did you, what were you, what was going through your mind when you heard that? Did you realize immediately that this was something special? Well, yeah, I did because the song related to my life. You know, the lyric and everything was as if he had knew me. You know, as if he, you know, knew about my pain from, you know, my earlier, my first experience of love, you know, so that that was it. It wasn't the first track that I recorded. The first track was Everything's Gonna Be All Right. That was the track that was released first that didn't really, didn't really do anything, but it's like now a Northern Soul classic. You know, and uh, so, um, yeah, they were just experimenting. Nobody knew. I certainly didn't know what was happening. They were experimenting with me. You know, I had the sound that everybody liked. So I had the sound. So my whole sound has developed from working with Andrew and, and you, you know, Mike and all these um, British producers you know, using my voice as uh, as as the voice of this British soul sound, you know. So, like, I'm a soul singer, but compared to my American, all the American soul, I, I, my my sound is really distinctive. It's nothing like that. It does is you wouldn't call it. Funky, you wouldn't. It is funky, it's soulful or whatever, but it's not that kind of American funk. It's not an American sound. It's a pretty sound. I mean, you said that the the first cut is the deep, deepest mirrored your own experience. How important is it for you to be able to identify with the lyrics of a song in order to be able to sing it to the best? Very of important. So very what, important because it's all about expression. 
You know, to me, singing is all about expression. And I have always, without knowing, see, I didn't know that I was a good singer. Or I didn't know that I had talent or anything. It's just something that I just did. I didn't know what I was doing. But all I know is that the lyric, you have to express, tell the story. It's all about telling the story. And so like, even though I have a very soulful sound, I can like, whoa, people like pay me to, to, to like do that whole, you know, wailing gospel stuff and everything. But my own records were like all very melodic, you know, I've known from those early immediate days and even the stuff that I did with Barry, you know, they're just beautiful ballads because I was also a big fan of a Baccarat of Dionne Warren, who had, and so I, I liked her sound. And so like, I sort of like based my sound, my, my sound on, 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 on that sort of like balance. Cause that's what was presented to me to sing. And also, you know, like I loved Aretha Franklin. Aretha was like my heart and soul. So in those days when I went on the road, I was like singing all the American soul stuff live, but recording, I wasn't recording that that uh, that style. I was, you know, I was just singing the songs, which is what I do now. If somebody gives me a song, you know, I want to know what the song is about because I think it's really, really important because I think, you know, words are powerful things. And, you know, when you, and, and being a soul singer, I sang a beautiful song. That song I sang that Barry Gibb produced, Bury Me Down by the River. I sung that song. It's a beautiful track, but it was a negative connotation for me. Because when I recorded that song, I didn't have a hit for a long time. I really got buried. You know, sometimes I think about that. And and ever since I've sung that song, you you know, I always make sure that I, I don't I'm that I'm singing positive. You know, it has to be a positive lyric. I mean, we've talked about the negative relationships that you've had in the past in 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 America so you know your husband and then um Ike and the way he dealt with people well, my father as well my, I had, your father, yeah. you know really my, my father he was a good man and everything but my father was me and he had a lot of kids he was a young man he had a lot of kids they had a lot of tragedies and stuff and things going on in their lives. And, you know, and I wasn't, um, my oldest brother had that horrible accident where he lost his leg when he was four years old. And I'm the second child. And then it's like stair steps under me. My sister's like 10 months younger than me. Then there's a brother that's 11 months younger than her. And then I've got two more younger brothers. So there was never any room for me to be a baby. You know, I remember taking, you know, I was always trying to be grown up. So I got in a, in a lot of trouble being copying grown ups. <laughs> yeah, but also that, that you, in a sense, you were, it feels like you were always put down. And then you came to London and you said that, that you didn't know you had this voice, that you had this talent. And it's it's almost like, obviously it was there. And, but was it Britain that sort of, when you started to meet people who really supported you and would see your talent for what it was, rather oh, than the yeah, people putting it down? Indeed. Absolutely, you know. Um, you know, when I was singing, grew up singing in church, you know, the church knew I could sing, but you know what I mean? I left there because I was so young. See, I, I left, I even left home, you know, at 15. At 15, I was, I was no longer a child, you, 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 but I was a child. So, 
so so yeah i didn't get a chance to i didn't know anything i just knew that i had two children that i needed to take care of and that's why i went went, went on the road with Argentina. it was a way for me to get out of that and take care of my kids and that's why i stayed in england Mick knew I had kids and everything. He thought it would be a good thing for me, you know, to take take up that opportunity. It was an opportunity that they they laid on me, you know. If if I stayed, I would sign to Immediate, and Andrew would produce half of my album. Mick would produce the other half, and so I didn't know anything about the business. So it's like trust, trust. I called my parents, they prayed on it, you know, <laughs> I prayed on it, you know, they knew that it was the opportunity for me. So if it wasn't for my, my mother and father, even though they, 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 they never really, you know, they never came to the UK and saw me perform or supported me in that way. And, you know, it's like I've always been out here on my own. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. I didn't know anything about the business. I was shy. I was very introverted, which is a terrible personality to have in the music business. <laughs> you know, it's just not good, you know. And and at that time, it was a serious time. I was coming out of the civil rights revolution into the rock and roll revolution, into uh, living in white society. I had never integrated like that so fully. So I was over here by myself until, of course, I met Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix and I. We were, you know, that's another blessing, you know, like him being, us being, in the same place at the same time with the same opportunities. Of course, he, he knew what he was doing, you know what I mean? But he was a really uh, uh, great for me. He helped me with my confidence, you know, like, and helped me to like, you know, uh, you know, to, to just to go with the flow, you know, and go with the experience and don't be so, uh, sensitive about everything because I was, I didn't know what, I didn't know. I didn't know who, who I was, how I fit in with all of these people who were educated and, you know, and all of this. And, <laughs> you know, it was, it was, it was, it was like that. So, so yeah, I wasn't one of those black girls. Everybody thinks that black girls are like hip, you know, and they like, you know, cool. And you know, I was not cool. <laughs> I mean, I was you... not cool, and I, I was so square. And I was, I really was. I was square. I mean, I did like, you know, as far as like that saved me, you know, because I never got into heavy, heavy drugs. I mean, okay, like I smoked my share of marijuana, like everybody else. And, um, you know, whatever. And it helped me, really. <laughs> it helped me. You know, and now that I know that you, you know, like in that time, it, 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 you know, it was like, you know, marijuana, whereas like now it, it's medicinal. Everybody realized how medicinal it really is. But I had my kids as well. See, I had brought my kids with me, so... I had to keep, I, ha I had to be together as much as I could be as being a, a baby making babies and not really knowing anything about life. You know, I just did my best, but I had the responsibility of two children. So I couldn't go wild like everybody else. And not only that, I was working all the time. I was working. From the 60s right on up until, you know, the, the 70s, whatever, I was working. I worked. It was, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't just glam, glam with me. 
But you talk about all these people, Jimi Hendrix, about Mick Jagger, all the people, all these massive, Tina, all these massive um, stars that have been in your life and what they've, what they gave you. But whenever we meet someone, there's always two sides. You always give them something as well. What do you think you, in retrospect, were, was able to transport to them, was able to, were able to give them? Love. I think, I think love. I think I was a very sweet girl who didn't really know. I didn't know anything. I didn't, I, you know, I was just a, a, this young kind of sweet girl who could sing, who had this talent that she didn't even realize how, what a great talent it was, you know, and, uh, so that was it that 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 whole thing and but I wasn't like fast enough you you know like I, and and then I was I was yeah yeah I I I I think I I don't know it'd be interesting I I mean I haven't seen Mick for years I haven't seen Mick since 1984 since since uh Stu died last time I saw Mick was at uh uh Stu's Wake in Stuart's Wake and uh, all all of those guys I haven't seen them I don't, I don't know Ronnie Wood all of them you know Woody they are Woody used to live in my house you know with his girlfriend Chrissy and you know when they were homeless and you know uh, you, you know I haven't seen those people, so I don't know what they think. All I know is that they never mentioned me, you know? So when I wrote my book, I just thought, but for a while, you know, like I was like, and everybody said that, well, you know, like Mick Jagger, he don't like his, his ex-girlfriends to write about him or whatever, you know? I am like, hey, I'm sorry, Mick was in my life. You know, Mick was in my life and we were friends. And we were close friends for many years, you know, through his, through Marsha and Claudia and and whoever else. Mick and I were friends right up until nineteen. When did he get married to Bianca? Oh, in the seventies, wasn't it? I think. Yeah, you know, we we were. We, he was my friend. You know, I've never had an argument with Mick. We've never, you know, it's just like, boom. Everybody's life went different ways and everything. So I don't know. I don't know if he's mad if I wrote because of my book. I haven't heard from him. There's one story in the book that I really appreciated because I think sometimes when you meet people, you do see a mirror to yourself. And you mentioned about meeting David Bowie in Amsterdam. Oh. And that you you recognize an insecurity in him as a sort of mirror to your own insecurity. Can you tell me about that that meeting and what it was? That well, you, you know, I kind of explain it. I think it's I wouldn't want to like I, I I think that's something a, a nice little story for people to read the book and I said at the beginning that uh, you you write in your book I'm a thriving soul survivor and still going strong and as I said you are and you've got a new <laughs> single out I and it's, do it's called as your jumper suggests <laughs> it won't be Christmas without you can you tell me a little bit about it and the sound of of that oh it's so lovely I when I heard it I really loved it because it like it you know it took me right back to the 60s you know west coast Phil Spector Christmas album, you know, like all the bells and the, and the jingles, bells and the saxophones and the, you know, it, it it's just like the that wall of sound, you know, the Ronettes, you know, I was an iCat, so you know what I mean? It's like that whole girly group, that thing 60s vibe. And so the song came to me through my solicitor, Simon Long, uh, sent me a demo that he had got from uh, Brian Rawlings from Metrophonic and asked me to have a listen to it. The song was originally, uh, uh, was supposed to was pre uh, supposed to be produced for Cher because they record Cher there, but Cher 
was doing uh, something else or doing an album or whatever, the song came to me. So I thought like, oh, wow, here we go. Here we go again, right? You know, another blessing. I went into the studio with uh, with the producers, uh, Mark Taylor and, and Patrick Mescal, and they were great working with them, really great producers who just gave me, like, they knew what they wanted, they directed me, I gave them what they wanted, and we got a good record. I'm glad I was able to hit those notes still and sound like a teenager. <laughs> This record is really important. Move over, Mariah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the new queen of Christmas is here. I mean, just, just, just let me throw my crown in there. You know, you've had it forever. Everybody already said that you will not just be the only queen of Christmas, please. Well, I must say, Pipiano, I've what I've really loved, apart from meeting you here, is that actually doing all the research, reading the autobiography, which was so moving and oh, deep and a wonderful story in the end, because it, you know it has a uh, it has hope in a life, and and I really enjoyed that. And also listening to your music because I've been you know going through Spotify and putting it all on while listening to the autobiography, and of course your latest single. And one thing I want to say at the end is I interviewed Madeline Bell at the beginning of the summer, and I know you're mates with her. That's my and big I, sister. I can tell why you two get on. Absolutely. Oh, that's my big sister. You know, like Madeline. You know, Madeline and Doris. You know, my my relationship and my friendship and my sisterhood with Madeline and Doris and the flirtations and you know, American sisters here that like sort of like um, you know made the UK our home and everything. They have really helped me to get through so much. Have a merry, merry Christmas, everybody, and wishing you all every happiness and every success in 2023. We're going to get through these, like, really challenging times that we're living in. Lots of love. God bless and keep you all. Oh, thank you so much. And happy Christmas to you. All right. Bye-bye, Steve. Bye. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.